You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Left Right Forward Show, Business and Political Solutions. I am your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. I am proud to present to my KTAL audience a distinguished diplomat and professor and good friend, our nation's first woman Secretary of State, Secretary Madeleine Albright. Enjoy the show. Uh, I am uh, so excited that my guest today is a good friend and colleague. She is extremely successful and prominent. She has been UN ambassador. She has been the first woman Secretary of State. I want to introduce to our listeners today my good friend, Madeleine Albright. Welcome to the podcast, Madeleine. Well, Mr. Ambassador, my good friend, uh, Delano, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to responding to your questions and trying to inform, educate, and inspire your <laughs> listeners. Well, I'm sure you will. First of all, uh, as I'd said to your staff, this was very informal, that we have known each other for quite some time. Uh, I remember that we worked together on education projects in Washington, D.C. when our children were in school. So we've known each other for a long, long time in the D.C. area. Uh, what I'd like to have. Thank you. What I'd like to start with today is giving me a sense. I was reading about your unbelievable background experiences, and I was so fascinated by your experience of coming to America. Uh, you were an immigrant uh, to America, and your parents were immigrants to America. So I'd like you to share with our listeners the story of how your coming to America as an immigrant unfolded. Well, thank you for asking me that question, because it's so essential to my life and understanding where my um, approaches come from and how I think about national security policy. My father... Uh, was a Czechoslovak diplomat, um, yes. and he um, we were refugees twice, frankly. The first time after uh, Hitler's uh, armies marched into Czechoslovakia in March 1939, and my father managed to escape uh, with my mother and me, and we lived in England during the war. Mm. And all through the Blitz, we lived in England. Uh, and then after the war, we went back to Czechoslovakia, and my father was made ambassador to, the, to Yugoslavia. And um, he was a professional diplomat, and uh, his time there was up in 1948. And so they found him a different position, and it was to be the Czechoslovak representative on a new commission to do with India and Pakistan over Kashmir. By the way... Um, wow. The terrible problems that are going on with Kashmir right now are the kinds of issues that came after India and Pakistan split. So mm -hmm. uh, that is a subject that keeps coming back. Anyway, my father in Czechoslovakia, all of a sudden the communists took over. He didn't want to work for the communists, but his best friends in Belgrade were the British and American ambassadors, and they suggested that he report to them. We came to the United States, and my mother, sister, and brother by them, and uh, didn't have a terrible story because we came on diplomatic passports. But um, I, we then, my father defected and asked for political asylum. And from then on, we were refugees. And wow. I have to tell this story because my father used to say this. 
is when we were in England, people were very kind. They said, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator. You're welcome here, and when are you going home? <laughs> when we came to the United States, people said, we're so sorry your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here, and when are you going to become a citizen? And my father said, that is what made America different from every country. And so that's my immigrant story. And I always felt welcome here and grateful. I describe myself as a grateful American. Well, that's a fantastic story. And so you were about 11 years old at that time, and you uh, were not a citizen. And you became a citizen uh, at what point? Well, not for a long time, not Mm -hmm. until between my sophomore and junior year in college. Wow. Um, And it really did take a long time, partially because of the McCarthy era. Uh, and as I mentioned, there was a brief period that my father technically was working for a communist government. He actually wasn't because he didn't ever report back. Uh, but I think there were questions about that. And thanks to the British government who provided um, references about how helpful and what a good guy he was. But I didn't become a citizen until uh, between my sophomore and junior year. And it didn't occur to me, frankly... Uh, that I was being regarded as a foreign student when right. I first went I went to Wellesley. Right. Uh, but I really, for me, my I wanted to fit in, Delano. That's all I wanted to do, was just to be an American um, and to, to be a part of America. When we first came, it was on November 11th, 1948, and Thanksgiving happened right after, and I remember we were all singing, We Gather Together, and all of a sudden I heard somebody asking for God's blessing. And I thought, who's asking? And it turns out I was asking, and from then on I asked. Right. Because I just wanted to fit in as an American. And you had that British accent. And uh, yep. that, that you grew up uh, in those years, you were in Denver, Colorado, and your father was working at uh, the University of Denver at that time? That's correct. The thing that was happening, and I understand this all better now, but the Rockefeller Foundation was finding jobs for Central European intellectuals uh, or something like that. And they found my father a job at the University of Denver, and we had no idea where Denver was. And my parents bought a car and started driving across America. And my mother said at some point, they say Denver's the mile-high city, but we're not going up, so maybe we're going the wrong direction. (laughs) Uh, But my parents loved Denver. My father was a professor at the University of Denver, uh, and one of his students was Condoleezza Rice, if you can believe it. Oh, incredible. What a small world. And also that I uh, understand that he was involved in teaching international relations, and the school in Denver at the university is named for your father. Is that right? It is now. It's mm-hmm. called the Corbell School. Very proud of that. They, My parents loved Denver, and my mother used to say there are only two great cities in the world, Prague and Denver. Right. That's incredible. Well, I think the story of coming to America as an immigrant, of immigrant parents, uh, and doing all the things you've done is an important story for our listeners. We're talking to former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, and she was just sharing with us uh, her story of coming to America. And I think that leads to one of the pressing issues of today, and that is immigration and immigration reform. And give me your thoughts about being uh, of immigrant parents and coming to this country as an immigrant, what's your thought about where we are today in terms of immigration activities? Well, I I am deeply troubled by where we are today. And by the way, uh, 
Delma, you know that I am known for the pins I wear. So today I have a Statue of Liberty pin on. Oh, good show. Uh, really is, um, and, and as I keep saying, I'm a grateful American, and I do think that when you come to this country as an immigrant or a refugee, you really do want to be a part of the country and contribute and, and really be a productive citizen. And by the way, I think most people would prefer to live in the country where they're born because they have family and they know the language. And so um, it, it, terrible circumstances that drive people to want to go and be in another country. Mm-hmm. I think that what is going on now is making the Statue of Liberty weep. Um, and uh, I, it is un-American in so many different ways in terms of not being welcoming, not understanding that this country is based on um, people coming here and wanting to be a part of this country. Um, and so uh, I have been talking an awful lot about why it's important to be welcoming to immigrants to try to help and realize that uh, having people come in from other countries is something that rejuvenates and refreshes America. And so I'm out there talking about my immigrant experience and how important it is for us to be welcomed. And and I really do think that, um, without sounding self-serving, immigrants are good for America. That's for sure. And your story certainly uh, uh, solidifies that for sure. Uh, so growing up in Denver and then you moving on to Wellesley, uh, how many languages were you speaking at that time? I'm always fascinated by people yeah. in language. Well, what happened, by, uh, what happened is that uh, I, I was bilingual in Czech mm-hmm. and English-English. Right. Uh, and then we moved to Yugoslavia, and I learned to speak and understand Serbian, as it's a Slavic language, so it's not that hard to understand it. And then what happened was my father didn't want me going to school with communists, Mm -hmm. and so I had a governance. Uh, uh, And so what happened was um, the governess was somebody that taught me Czech grammar and various things, and I got ahead of myself. And in Europe, you can't go on to the next level until you're a certain age. So my parents sent me to Switzerland to school, to the French part of Switzerland. I didn't speak French. They wouldn't feed me if I didn't ask for it in French. So I learned French pretty fast. I bet you did. And also, as you studied, uh, and we're going to talk about those years, Wesley, and you also moved on to get a PhD, but you also studied Russian along your career as well. I I had always wanted to learn Russian, but I couldn't take it, or I didn't want to take it at Wellesley because uh, first-year Russian would have been too easy as another Slavic language, but I didn't know the alphabet, so I couldn't take second-year Russian. And then, um, what this is a crazy story, but my, I was pregnant, I didn't realize, with twins. Mm-hmm. They were born early. I had to leave them in the hospital, so I went and studied Russian <laughs> for eight hours a day for eight weeks. Um, and so I, that was my basis. And then, in order to write a book later about Poland, I learned Polish. So, wow. Uh, and so I, I love languages. Um, I try to speak them whenever I can. And being ambassador of the UN was terrific because I could listen uh, to um, what was being said in either French 
or Russians. That's incredible. Uh, we're going to get to politics. We're speaking to former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and incredible, incredible career uh, with all those languages. And, and, and diplomacy was in your family uh, and politics seems to be in your family. And you got very much involved with politics. And I, 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 I tell our listeners about it. Uh, I think you first started working in politics with Ed Muskie. Uh, and give us a sense of how you got involved in politics. Yeah. Well, first, let me tell you, my first involvement with politics was actually when I was at Wellesley. And what happened, this really dates me, because it's clear how old I am. Right. Adlai Stevenson was running for president, and uh, there were Democrats at Wellesley who wanted to go and uh, raise money for the Democrats, dollars for Democrats. So mm. I uh, went into Boston. Again, I was, I was a sophomore in college at that time and went around the streets asking for dollars for Democrats. So my first experience was this crusty old man who came up to me and said, five bucks for you, baby, but not one dollar for the Democrats. So that was my first experience. <laughs> so you, but you've been going out and raising money ever since, I know, for the ever Democratic since. Party. Uh, the thing that, that really did happen was I was married to a journalist, and at that time um, you couldn't really be involved in politics um, um, publicly because it, um, the journalists were very concerned about conflicts of interest. But what did happen, in, uh, we moved to Washington in 1968. I did a little bit of work for the Humphrey Muskie ticket. And then in 1972, uh, because I had learned about fundraising, when we were very involved with education, as you said earlier, I, mm -hmm. I did fundraising for my kids' school. And so I, in fact... Uh, started fundraising for Ed Muskie, um, and uh, I did that in 1972, and I really entered politics through um, being a fundraiser. That's and incredible. only later did I get involved in the substantive issues of politics. But, you know, every time I think about Ed Muskie and democratic politics, and I, and, and I know you remember this, that there was some... Uh, a time when he was publicly crying, and I'm not sure what the issue was, but at that time that was a very difficult thing for a man to be publicly seen, publicly crying, and that hurt his political chances, if I remember. You know what's interesting? It happened up in Maine mm -hmm. in 1972, and uh, what had happened was somebody had insulted his wife. Uh, and the truth is, um, it, he didn't cry. It was snowing, and he had um, snow was melting on his face. And David Broder, who was a reporter for the Washington Post, wrote, with tears streaming down his face, Ed Muskie, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and it wow. just was not crying. But it certainly did come off as if he had been crying, and it did hurt him. And by the way, the thing that happened, he actually won New Hampshire, but not by as much as he was supposed to. And so I think it did undercut his possibilities. And by the way, I was giving the biggest fundraising dinner ever given in Washington right after that episode, April 17, 1972. And you remember those uh, dates. And it was really, really the most expensive dinner in the history of fundraising, $125 a person. Wow. That's a long time ago, but that was a lot of money. It was Absolutely. anyway, and so that was for Ed Muskie. And then you then you got involved um, along the way with a number of campaigns, and uh, 
Um, just take us a little bit on your political journey. Well, I had then had gotten a reputation as a fundraiser, and so I did some fundraising for Senate candidates. One of them was Adlai Stevenson's son in Illinois. Um, I did some fundraising also, even before that, uh, for Walter Mondale, who had initially been appointed as a senator from Minnesota, and then in his first campaign where he had to run, I fundraised, and a number, mostly Senate kinds of things. And then I went to work for Ed Muskie on his staff right? because somebody from his staff left to go and work on um, Vice President Mondale's campaign in the Carter-Mondale years. And what happened, because my life really is so much going from one thing to another depending upon what reputation I had established or whom I knew. Mm-hmm. So I got a Ph.D. from Columbia um, and the best professor I ever had was Vignef Brzezinski. Right. And um, he is named National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter, and he calls me up, and he says, Madeline, perhaps you've heard that I've been named National Security Advisor. And I said, yes, I have. And he said, well, can you find me a place to live? <laughs> and I said, geez, big, I thought you were calling to offer me a job. Right. And he said, no, I'm calling to ask you to find me a place to live. Right. So I did find him a place to live, but within two years, he or a year and a half, he called and asked me to come and work in the White House on the congressional, to be the congressional liaison for the National Security Council. Uh, and so I worked in the White House uh, for the rest of the Carter administration and learned so much and really loved it. And It made me realize, and I teach now, that one of the most interesting aspects of our government are executive legislative relations, and I've been on both sides of those, both on the Hill and also then in an administration. So I was with the Carter White House until 1980. In fact, I was one of the last people to leave there um, on January 21st and went out to Andrews Air Force Base to uh, bid goodbye to Jimmy Carter who had just heard that um, the Iranians had released the hostages to Ronald Reagan. Wow. So, uh, from Iran. So, uh, but that really, I loved being in the government. I loved teaching about it. And so then in the 1980s, I went to teach at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service. And it's incredible. And, And I've written several books, and I talk about relationships, and this is exactly your experience, is that you've, uh, you've had a career in politics and you, you were involved with the Democrats in raising money, but there were these relationships that began to unfold. When, was, when did you meet uh, the governor of Arkansas who was going to run for president named Bill Clinton? Well, talk about relationships. <laughs> and by the way, our relationship is interesting. We have known each other for a long time through a number of different uh, relationships and people that we were at various times. But Absolutely. what happened was uh, I had been asked to come and be the foreign policy advisor to Michael Dukakis when he was running in 1988. Um, and he was getting ready for his debate, and the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, came up to help in debate prep. Uh, wow. And it was very interesting to meet him. Um, then we all went out to dinner. And it was he had gone to Georgetown before I got there, and that was kind of our um, connection. But the weird part, though, is that uh, the only campaign I never worked in was Bill Clinton's. Right? Is that right? <laughs> because 
I was running a think tank by then, a 501c3, the Center for National Policy, and he had um, his brain trust, and so uh, I didn't work in that campaign. Um, but that's how I met him. Well, that's incredible. Well, I got a call from a former Peace Corps person that I had worked with, said that he was working for uh, the governor of Arkansas who was running for President Bill Clinton, and I was working for the telephone company as a CEO, and he said, we're doing CEOs for Clinton. Can you come and join us? And uh, I got permission in the telephone company at that time to join the CEOs for Clinton in Chicago, and that's how I got to meet him in 1992. Well, it was great, and it was wonderful to know him all the years. And and really, um, it was such a, and I think you, I know you feel this way, is what an honor and pleasure it was to work for such a smart president. There's no question about it. And so tell me how the, uh, the first uh, big uh, appointment of yours, becoming United Nations ambassador, how did that come about? Well, what happened was I had actually been asked, to be in charge of the transition uh, at the National Security Council for the Clinton administration. So I was the first person to go to the White House um, in November of 1992. Um, and I kind of went back, believe it or not, went back to practically the same office that I'd left in 1980 in the West Wing. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I was working on various documents to do with the transition and trying to figure out who would, um, who would want to stay and work for President Clinton and what were the jobs that needed to be done and all that. And so this seems like malice of forethought, but uh, we were trying to figure out what the role of the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations would be because President Clinton wanted to do much more with the United Nations. And Jean Kirkpatrick, who had been the ambassador, uh, was never a member of the so-called Principles Committee, which is the committee of people who actually helped set up the decision-making process for the president. And so um, a friend of, that I had worked with before, Rick Enderforth, who was helping me, we sent a memo um, to Tony Lake, then to the president, that the ambassador to the UN should be a member of the cabinet and a principal, one of the principals. I had a thought that I would probably get some job, and mm -hmm. there was somebody that was a very good friend of mine, Dick Gardner, who was desperate to be ambassador to the UN. And Sandy Berger calls me in, and he said, the president would like you to be ambassador to the UN. And instead of saying, thank you very much, I said, Dick Gardner will kill me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, and then uh, what happened was um, I went down to Little Rock and spoke with President Clinton about the job, and, and he actually said if he weren't about to be President of the United States, he would like to be ambassador to the U.N. Now, did I believe him? Not really. No. <laughs> but it was very uh, inspiring, and I love being ambassador to the U.N. It was at a fantastically interesting time because the freeze of the Cold War was gone, and we were able to do any number of things at the U.N. in terms of peacekeeping operations, of trying to figure out how the U.N. could operate in a post-Cold War situation. I love doing it. Um, and there are some very smart people there, and it was very interesting. And you were, that's, that was around 1993. And uh, just thinking about the challenges during that time, um, I remember... Uh, Rwanda was a big issue, and 
the question about what was happening there and the UN's role and our role in the U.S. about what was going on. And I remember reading your assessment that um, one of the things that you thought about that maybe we should have taken some action sooner, one of those things that you might have regretted about. Uh, no question. And I'll tell you what happened, and I, and I do teach about all this now, is that I think it's very important for students and those that are interested in this to understand that these are not easy decisions and that you have to know what are the other things that are taking place at the time. And what happened was that we had expanded our peacekeeping operations generally, but, and we were in Bosnia, and we were in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happened was that, um, I'm sure you remember this, there was uh, Black Hawk helicopters that were shot down, American military were being dragged through the streets, and um, there was a lot of criticism of what were we doing in Somalia. Also, at the same time, there were problems in Haiti, and we were trying to figure out how to be helpful, but there were riots there, and an aircraft carrier that was on its way there to Port-au-Prince had to be turned around. And then the Rwandan issue comes up, and this is another part in terms that people need to understand the human beings involved in this. The person that was a representative of the Secretary General would come in to the Security Council every day and kind of in a very monotone voice would talk about all the horrors of the world at the time. Uh, And he barely mentioned Rwanda, and Rwanda was on the Security Council. Uh, And um, I was an instructed ambassador and had instructions not to support a larger United Nations contingent there. And then there were discussions that went on. The ambassador from Nigeria explained a lot of what was happening. I got up from my seat. We didn't have cell phones. Um, and went and called Washington to get a change in instructions, and I couldn't. Wow. Uh, and I think it's the one of the most embarrassing things. But the bottom line is that it was, uh, you know, really uh, earthquake kind of um, um, <coughs> genocide. It, it wasn't rolling genocide. I wish we had done something, but I don't think we could have gotten there in time to stop it. Um, but uh, President Clinton has, I, to this day, he has asked for a uh, better explanation of why we didn't do something about Rwanda. It is definitely a very bad mark against um, us and the U.N. system. Well, that's, a, that's incredible. Just explain to our listeners, uh, because I remember that word instructions. When I was an ambassador, uh, I understood exactly what that meant. Would you explain that? Because you said you couldn't get a change of instructions. Uh, what, what, what's that about? Well, what is interesting is you as ambassador, you point out, there are decisions made by the United States government um, about what the policy is towards X country, in your case, South Africa, and mine right. at the United Nations. And so um, what was interesting is the instructions would come from Washington, and they were sent, in my case, uh, by the Assistant Secretary for International Organization. In your case, they would have been sent by the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. Correct. Um, And it tells you, literally, instructs in terms of what you are supposed to do on a particular issue, whom you should speak with. And what you um, should say. (laughs) What you should say. Absolutely. Um, And it gives some kind of order to what is going on. 
I did not think, frankly, that I was going to get good instructions um, from the State Department because they weren't wanting to be a part of this. And so because I was a cabinet member and a member of the Principals Committee, I called the National Security Council uh, staff because the uh, the uh, <coughs> excuse me the head of the National Security Council staff, Tony Lake, was in fact an Africa expert, but right. they did not change my instructions. Mm-hmm. So your your instructions were one way, and you you could not get it. Changed. I would not have wanted to do something else. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is the following, and I think this is something that needs to be kept in mind. The State Department, whether it's an ambassador or the Secretary of State, can say many things, but we have no airplanes, no forces. And so whatever happens has to be done in conjunction with the Defense Department. So that is another part about our government in terms of how to coordinate uh, what our response is going to be on any particular issue that requires the use of the military. Well, that's incredible. So this experience at the U.N., I'm sure uh, you were treading uh, new ground on many issues, but also um, the next move uh, was the appointment uh, of Secretary of State, and uh, you were the first woman. So I know that wasn't an easy move. Uh, Were there politics involved? Uh, How did that all unfold? Well, that would be an understatement. (laughs) So what happened was that I, I described this period Uh, as the time of great mentioning. (laughs) Um, What happened was Secretary Warren Christopher had made clear that he was not going to stay for a second term. So all of a sudden there were discussions about who might be the next Secretary of State. And my name was out there, and somebody said, well, a woman couldn't be Secretary of State because Arab leaders would not deal with a woman. Wow. So what happened was that... um, uh, the um, the Arab ambassadors at the UN um, uh, made put together a statement and said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. So that part went away. Right. But then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, <laughs> said, yeah, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. Wow. Uh, and, and what did I that mean? Actually, what did that mean? Well, that I was a a woman, Woman. a girl. How could that be possible? (laughs) So I now know that I wouldn't have become Secretary of State if it hadn't been for Hillary Clinton. And the reason I know that, because when I was Secretary of State, um, sometimes the three of us would travel together to foreign countries, and we were somewhere in Central America, and I would introduce her and she would introduce the president, and he actually said that during this period of great mentioning, (laughs) Hillary would come to him and say, why wouldn't you name Madeline? She is most in tune with your views, expresses them better than anybody else, and besides, it would make your mother happy. So (laughs) that is how it happened. (laughs) Incredible story. We're talking to uh, former UN Ambassador and former Secretary of State Madeline Albright. Uh, That's an incredible story. I don't want to leave the UN if... you might have some other pressing issues you might want to speak about, challenges at the U.N. before I move on to some issues of Secretary of State. Anything at the U.N. you'd like to mention to our listeners? Well, i tell you what I'd like to mention is because I think people kind of put down the U.N. and the people that are the ambassadors there and think they just go to parties and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, um, the other ambassadors are really highly qualified 
they are either people that are going to become the foreign ministers of their countries, or they were. And it is one. It was a really terrific time to be there. Uh, a lot of very, very good discussions. A lot of substantive issues. Uh, the only problem is that the U.S. in fact uh, has its moments where not supportive of the U.N. and there are um, a budget that goes for peacekeeping uh, that we were in um, arrears on uh, as a result of some of the issues from the Bush administration. And at the same time, I was working very hard to reform some of the bureaucracy at the U.N. because uh, the way I used to talk about it is that during the Cold War, the U.N. Uh, bureaucracy grew to elephantine proportions, and then we were trying to make it do gymnastics. Right. So I would be arguing for reform, and meanwhile we weren't paying. And one of the mm. best stories I have is that the British, our best friends in the General Assembly, delivered a line that they had waited more than 200 years to say, which is representation without taxation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just turn the tables on us as Americans. Definitely. That's, that, definitely. that's incredible. But it was great. And I'll tell you, it also opened my mind to every conceivable issue. There couldn't have been a better job to have before becoming Secretary of State. And I knew a lot of the people. Uh, some of them did become foreign ministers. Um, and it was just incredible. I loved doing it. Well, thank you for that. And I think you also uh, would would uh, agree totally that we need our allies when we're dealing with foreign policy. We need our friends. We need to work in units in because this is a global economy we're dealing with. Foreign policy is global. We need friends and allies, unlike what's happening today, uh, that we cannot do these things alone. No question. And I think... One of the things that happened, President Clinton said at first that we were the indispensable nation. I just said it so often it became identified with me, but there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone, that the U.S. needs to be engaged, and if we're not, then it's very hard to bring others along, but we need our allies. Um, Americans don't like the word multilateralism. Mm -hmm. It has too many syllables, and it ends in an ism, but it basically is just partnerships. And we are stronger with our partners. That's exactly right. Uh, you took over as Secretary of State, the first woman Secretary of State in our history, in 1997. And as I was doing my research, I, I saw an important piece that you were there at the time, uh, the beginnings of your secretaryship, uh, at the time of the transfer of sovereignty from UK to Hong Kong. Uh, UK, the British had had um, a possession uh, over uh, Hong Kong. And you were, at the, you were Secretary of State at that time. And so now we have today uh, Chinese, pro uh, the Hong Kong protesters, because we've got a system now uh, that Hong Kong is a part of China. So it's one country, but two systems. So I thought very clearly, I said, I have to ask Secretary about uh, the Hong Kong issue because she was there in 1997. Well, it was a fascinating time. And... Uh, it was the British that were doing the turnover mm -hmm. because they were the ones that were in charge of Hong Kong, and we were there because of being the United States and wanted to also verify um, what was going to happen. And what it was, it was interesting to be there. The pride that the um, uh, Hong Kong people had in, in having this particular status, 
but part of it was that they were going to be able to have a legislative council, uh, which they were going to be able to elect and have some sense of um, freedom. And it's a vibrant city. I'm sure that many of your listeners have been there, and it's an economic hub. Right. And uh, I think that what happened was that the uh, executive leader there um, has been cutting down on the kind of um, guarantees and rights that were given to the Hong Kong people, um, and they are objecting in, in a democratic way. Um, but I think it's an incredibly complicated situation because there is violence there now. That, and uh, the truth is that the main, the uh, Beijing uh, actually benefits from a lot of the economic uh, uh, activity in Hong Kong. And so there are people who thought and think that they need it. It's kind of the golden goose. But right. the bottom line, it has created issues for the, the mainland Chinese. And it also um, complicates whatever the relationship is with Taiwan. So it has very large uh, uh, consequences. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, but it would certainly be important if the United States made clear that we believe that um, human rights are involved in, here, um, that uh, there is, should be a way that the people in Hong Kong can express their views about what their legislative council would be like. Well, it's incredible. I, I, I began to learn a lot about what was happening there. You've got a, a, a one country, but two different systems. And Hong Kong is probably more leaning toward a, a democracy. And uh, the mainland China is controlled by, by the communists. But the, with, with that handover from UK, there were some things there would gave, that gave Hong Kong a little bit more autonomy. But you see this tension is rising uh, today. And I think that's a very relevant issue. Absolutely. And there was this whole issue, very specifically, a law about extradition. Right. That if somebody was not following whatever rules, um, then the Hong Kong, this executive leader, would be able to send them to China, mainland China. Um, and that is not the way it was seen. And they would like to have this extradition bill be taken off the docket. Um, the executive leader has said it's dead in the water, but it has not been removed from the docket, as far as I can tell. And that seems to be the issue that it is it, it has not been withdrawn, and that's still one of the protests. Um, tell me again, as Secretary of State, uh, what was probably some of your more uh, challenges at the time? I want to ask you about the Middle East, because I know that you had a lot of dealings in the Middle East, and you were involved in, in, in those issues. Uh, give me a sense of, uh, of what was happening in your tenure as Secretary of State with the Middle East. Well, the Middle East is something uh, that is very absorbing to uh, anybody that is in any of the roles in, in an administration. It, it can suck up all the time, and the question is who really deals with it. On a day-to-day -day basis, I had a wonderful person working, Dennis Ross, who was incredibly knowledgeable about every part of the Middle East issue, and the issues continue always to be the same. Uh, Israel is a democracy, um, and yet at the same time, 
there are questions about what is happening to the Palestinian people. And even at that stage, what we were trying to work on is what is known as the two-state solution, right. that the Palestinians would be able to have their own state and Israel would continue to be, be its state and they would have good relationships. But it is so unbelievably complicated and history has made it even more complicated. And recently it has become worse uh, because um, there is an intransigence um, on the part of, or basically the political leadership um, on, in both places uh, it doesn't want to move. And so the United States, just to put it this way, we have the best conceivable people to do um, kind of bridging ideas and trying to figure out how to bridge the differences. But we can be brilliant about it, but if the political leadership in Israel and the political leadership among the Palestinians does not... Um, uh, want to go with it, there's very little that we can do about it. And so we were fairly active during the Clinton administration, ending up in the summer of 2000 with a meeting at Camp David, which in the end we were not able to resolve the problem. Uh, and now it's all kind of at a standstill um, where nobody's talking to anybody. Um, and But I have to tell you, one of my experiences I uh, am a Democrat, and I have right. had a lot to do with writing the party platform. And I have, we have always been for a, uh, an independent democratic Israel and that we would support it. And uh, President Carter is the one that, um, when he had his Camp David, uh, made sure that Israel would be the recipient of a lot of American assistance both economic and military, and so I have always supported that. And then as secretary, I went on my first trip uh, to, I've been to, I had been to Israel under other circumstances, but my first official trip, and I first went to speak to a school in Jerusalem. Uh, we talked about all the different things that were going on, and then I went to uh, a high school in Ramallah in the Palestinian part, and one of the students there asked me, what his future was, and I couldn't answer the question. Wow. And it made me recognize the fact that I needed to go back and understand better the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people. And I think we have to understand that. And at the moment, it doesn't seem as though there is a lot of understanding of it. Um, and so we are at a standstill in what is one of the saddest, longest-going disputes that is having more and more of an impact on the other things that are happening in the Middle East. Well, that's incredible. I can remember you saying this, and one time that I'd heard you speak, that you're not going to make that move until those countries decide that they're going to come together. So the leadership there on both sides are extremely important if we're going to get peace in the Middle East. Is that correct? No question. And, and as I said, we can't do it without them uh, recognizing that there are opportunities. And um, and so it's going back and forth in so many different ways. And this recent incident of uh, Congress people being turned back from Israel, and uh, uh, what's all that about in, in terms of the politics of what's going on? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I think that there should not be um, kind of restrictions. Our members of Congress have, you know, uh, go their congressional delegations 
Um, and in, over the years, I can tell you, having accompanied them, um, uh, American members of Congress have met with opposition parties, um, have uh, met with whomever they wanted to. Um, and I think that what unfortunately happened, um, and all I know is what I've read in the papers on this, right. is that President Trump was very critical of the people that were going, um, especially the women. Um, and uh, so then um, when they wanted to see, they had requested to speak to Palestinians, they were turned down. And that is, uh, it, it's hard to figure out what the dynamics, how this all started, but it clearly was uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu building on some of the things that President Trump had said. And that partnership uh, kept those uh, congresspersons out of, the, out of Israel at the time. Right. What do you think about the moving of the uh, capital to uh, Jerusalem? Is well, a- I think it's something that everybody has talked about, but we talked about it as a final status issue. There's several things that have to do with that. One of the things, as you know, is when you have agreements with other countries or trying to work something out, you say uh, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Right. And then there's some things that you put off till the end if you've really agreed on a lot of other things. And so final status issues has been the status of Jerusalem, and the other one has to do with refugees, many of whom the Palestinian refugees, many of them um, lived in what is now Israel, um, they have uh, their questions about the land they own, their questions about uh, where there are more Israeli settlements that are being built, whether they're being built on what the Palestinians see as could be part of a future state. But Jerusalem is a final status issue, and I think it did complicate the things by moving the embassy when they did. Right, it's just right. part of a growing set of issues that are making it harder and harder for the United States to play the honest broker. Well, thank you so much. We're talking to Madeleine Albright, former uh, U.N. ambassador, former Secretary of State. You've been generous with your time. I have uh, just so many other things I'd like to talk about. Uh, But I want to bring it closer to home, uh, moving from the Secretary uh, of State office you've held. I know you've got some thoughts about 2020 elections and about where we are as a Democratic Party. Uh, uh, tell them, what, what are your thoughts? Well, let me just say, um, I love, I have loved campaigns and elections, to go back to what we were talking about initially. Right. Uh, I have said, by the way, uh, my most recent book is called Fascism, A Warning. Mm-hmm. It's um, kind of a bland title. Um <laughs> But I've had an awful lot of uh, public appearances. And one of the things that I've said is that I'm very glad the political season has begun because there are so many issues that we have to talk about. Um, I'm sorry that um, it hasn't been really a broad-based discussion that the debates that are out there, uh, you know, you can't raise your hand Uh, and one minute and say what your position is on the health (laughs) care situation. Mm -hmm. And so I've been a little disappointed in how this has been evolving, uh, but I'm very glad uh, that um, the political season has begun. 
And I want to ask you um, uh, to, to, to wind down a bit your comments about the standoff between the executive and the legislative um, and, and what you think might happen when Congress reconvenes. Uh, do you think the uh, House may move toward an impeachment inquiry, or is that a smart idea? Uh, we're not getting anything done because of this, this standoff between the two branches of government. I mean, let me just say, as I mentioned earlier, it's the most interesting part of our system. And an awful lot is based on um, discussions to do with the budget. And uh, believe it or not, even though there have been some agreements on the budget, uh, they aren't totally finished. And people are actually still talking about the possibility of a shutdown if, in fact, there isn't funding uh, for the, the fiscal year ends. Uh, and on um, the end of September, um, and so there's a gap there before the new bills come into place at the beginning of next year. So there are the budget issues. There also are just generally, when I travel, is I, I get the sense that people really don't think Congress does anything. Right. Uh, and it's very hard to show a record of passing legislation. I think what the president is doing is uh, unacceptable. And by the way, the best quote in my book uh, on fascism is a quote from Mussolini, mm -hmm. in which he said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. And so I have been saying there's a lot of feather plucking going on at the moment right. in terms of the accumulation of power and false information from the executive branch. Uh, but I, I do think that the public is watching to see whether Congress can get anything done. And so I do think it's important to uh, keep investigating what is going on, but I think simultaneously there has to be uh, more uh, legislative action so that the people can understand that we need to have a Congress that functions and a majority leader in the Senate that actually lets bills come up. And so... Um, I, I think we need the, the members of Congress need to pay more attention uh, on, to the things that they were elected to do. Yes, I think you're right, but I think the politics is such, you just alluded to it, uh, it takes uh, a bill to come through both houses. And uh, if there's legislation coming out of the House um, that's, that's predominantly Democrat, Democratic, and then it gets to the Senate, which is uh, run by the Republicans, uh, we don't get anything passed. Uh, so there's got to be some trade-offs here, some compromise, some bipartisanship, but the way things are going, it appears to be so divisive that that's not going to happen. Well, and that's very hard. And to, to go back to something we started with, when I worked for Ed Muskie, um, he was chairman of the Budget Committee. The budget process was brand new, and the thing he said to us, you all are going to work with Senator Henry Bellman from Oklahoma, who was a Republican. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the kind of thinking that went on, that what one thought about was the good of the country. Um, and I think what Majority Leader McConnell is doing is something that is very, very uh, anti-democratic in a number of different ways, of not allowing bills to come forward even. Yeah, and I think that what you said, uh, I'm beginning to think that when Congress comes back, uh, yes, they may try to push some things forward. Uh, yes, they'll probably continue some of the investigations. But impeachment is probably, inquiry is probably, impeachment itself is probably not going to happen. 
because I think uh, time is of, of the essence that either you're going to try to get something through, impeachment would just obviously take up everything, all of the oxygen. So I would hope, uh, I'm just hoping that uh, maybe we'll come back and see some movement uh, where something will get done, but we're going to need both parties to do it. Well, and I also do think with elections coming up, the best thing to happen would be if Trump were voted out of office. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I think having the political discussion is something that the American people can participate in and to explain what it is that they want in a government and not somebody that's plucking the chicken one feather at a time. (laughs) I appreciate that. Uh, I want to tell this personal story as we wind down. Uh, When I was ambassador-designate to South Africa, uh, we had the honor of uh, paying a visit with about nine of my other colleagues on the Secretary of State, Madden Albright. And I'm standing in line uh, with my wife, and my name is called, and I'm in the middle of my name is going to be called uh, in the middle of these nine or ten people. And I'm sitting there thinking, I said, what should I do? Um, I know the Secretary personally. I've known her for years. Should I, um, you know, give her a hug, or should I hold my hand out? These are things that are going through my mind. So it comes up, Ambassador Designate Delano Lewis and Mrs. Lewis, and I walk up and you say, hello, Dell, and give me a big hug. So that that solved my problem. <laughs> well, it did, and Gail, your wife is fabulous, and we have known each other all for a long time, and, and it goes back to something we were saying earlier, personal relationships make a difference. I certainly and I do. love coming to see you in South Africa. Oh, so. yes, and that was a, that was a, a trip of... Uh, uh, you did come when I was there, and I was so pleased to show you around at the time, um, and it was, a, it, was, it was a great coming together. Uh, the last thing I'd like to ask you, you've been so generous. Um, you were the first woman, of sec- uh, first woman Secretary of State. You've done some exciting things. Uh, you were U.N. ambassador. Uh, you've been involved with the political process, uh, a mother, uh, and uh, so many other things. Uh, what advice would you give, particularly— the, women listeners uh, on this podcast, what advice would you give uh, to, say, a woman who's interested in politics or a career in politics? What advice would you give? Well, I think that nothing is easy, whether it's politics or business, but I think that um, it's very important to have a goal and to try to work towards it. It may not be a straight line. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me. I was going to be a journalist. Um, you know, that any of this was possible. And the thing that I do think women have to recognize, you're not going to like this, is that women have to work twice as hard as men, uh, and um, that we we just have to work harder. Uh, and, And I do think that we need to recognize that women need to help each other. The most famous thing I ever said was that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And the reason I made that, I didn't make it up just out of whole cloth. It was my experience. When I first started um, and I was working on my Ph.D., other women would say to me, why aren't you at home with your children? And my hollandaise sauce is much better than yours. (laughs) Um, And they were putting me down and being judgmental. And I think women can't be judgmental about each other. We can't project our own sense of lack of confidence on some other woman. I also think that younger women need to understand that nothing comes easy. Uh, and so we need to support each other and help each other. 
and it's really terrific. And I have to say to you, just to go back on a story, when I said, you know, a woman couldn't be Secretary of State because African leaders wouldn't accept. Mm-hmm. So about eight years ago, um, my youngest granddaughter, when she was seven, or I guess is now nine years ago, said, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Right. Only girls are Secretary of State. And that was when Condi and Hillary were Secretaries <laughs> of State. And so I now kind of say that some of the men are proving that they can actually be Secretary of State. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story to end on. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, you have been a great role model for me and an inspiration to me, and I'm sure you've been that for our listeners today. We've been talking to uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former UN Ambassador Madeleine Albright, a good friend and colleague. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you. This was so much fun. Really great, Dale. Thank you. Give my love to Gail. I sure will. Thank you so much. Without a doubt, Secretary Albright did educate, inform, and inspire us. To all of our listeners, particularly those interested in foreign affairs, her career, her courage, and her commitment to service were exemplary. I was most impressed with the characterization of herself as a grateful American, and her view that America was a beacon of light for others, as this country welcomed her and her parents as immigrants to the United States. Secretary Albright's story of immigration is a lead-in to my next three shows on KTAL. Through episodes that were recorded a few months ago, We will hear views on immigration and immigration reform from the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, Secretary of State under President George W. Bush. We will hear from Congresswoman Social Torres Small, representative of the 2nd Congressional District of New Mexico. And we will hear Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Barack Obama. Tune in next Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m on KTAL Radio 101.5 FM, as former Secretary Colin Powell will share his views on immigration. Thanks for listening to the Left Right Forward Show. I am your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Until then, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left Right Forward Show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.